Before we start this episode, we have a quick message from our sponsors. If you're studying for the Foreign Service Officer Test like us, we have a great study tool for you. Besides listening to our podcast, we also use FSO Compass. On FSO Compass, you can find practice tests for every section, comprehensive courses that guide you through the entire application process, and you can even connect with other aspiring U.S. diplomats. The resources have really helped us prepare, and we hope they help you too. To access FSO Compass and get 10% off your annual subscription, be sure to use the link in our description box. Good luck! Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of How Did We Not Know That? My name's Jack. And I'm Nat. And today, Nat is going to present a topic of her choosing. Yeah, today I'm going to be talking about the Native American Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s and 70s. Okay, do tell. Yeah, actually, I'm super excited to talk about this. I feel like I really did not know anything about this movement. So, yeah, I have a lot to talk about. I'm going to talk about quite a few different demonstrations and activist groups. And so just before I get into all that, I kind of want to set the stage as to what the U.S. looked like during the 1960s. So basically, during this time, we see a huge surge in social activism and many different civil rights movements. The most, I guess the most notable one is the like African-American civil rights movement. And so the Civil Rights Act is actually passed in 1964, as we all know, um, and that was a huge landmark for minorities in the U.S. And so with this in mind, we also see a lot of social activism in regards to Native American rights in the U.S., Okay, before you go, I have a question. So with the Native American Civil Rights Act, how did it look for Native Americans in the country during the 1960s? What, because there's, we see like segregation between blacks and whites, but I actually don't know what that looked like for Asians or Hispanics or Native Americans. So did you do like research on that? Well, so yeah, so this is actually just like the General Civil Rights Act in 1964 that was passed in regards to like segregation in general. But so Native Americans at this time, I would say a lot of the main concerns on uh, in regards to their protests is about land claim and life on the reservations and treaties that had been ignored by the U.S. And so a lot of it is has a more legal focus compared to other I guess other minority groups yeah and so Native Americans were also facing a lot of racism and we see like harassment from police and profiling as well at this time too and struggles between you know encouragement of Native Americans to assimilate to standard American white culture Mm -hmm. and so at this time there's yeah there's mostly a lot of anger about reclaiming land that had been stolen in the past. So we also see like protests against the holiday of Columbus Day. A lot of people are to this day are still very angry that it is a U.S. holiday. Oh wow they were protesting that in the 60s. Yeah. Dude I got literally I got taught about Columbus Day like as a good thing when I was in second grade and there had already it was already controversial. Yeah no I I was really surprised to see that too. I I also thought it was like a more 
recent issue, but no, this has been literally being protested against since the 60s. So we see protests against that holiday, and then we also see a lot of lobbying of history textbook companies to include more respectful accounts of Native, Native American culture in history. And so obviously this is an episode of how did we not know that? So I still think there's a lot of progress that needs to be made in regards to the American education system and how it teaches Native American history. Um, but I mean, compared to how it was in the 1960s, I think there has been like significant changes that have been made. Right. Especially with like the internet. Yeah. I think now you can actually like hear the other side's opinions instead of just getting a textbook and having to rely on that. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's the most important way to understand what the contemporary situation is like. And then also its history is from Native Americans and indigenous peoples directly. So I guess to go into a little bit more about the movement, we also see organized fishings where Native Americans would fish in rivers that white residents wanted exclusively for themselves. And so these were more like peaceful demonstrations. And in 1961, so 500 Indian leaders from all across the country meet in Chicago to form the National Indian Youth Council. And so as a result, the organization begins to petition the federal government to address hundreds of Indian treaties that the government had broken over the last 400 years. Like, I guess this is one of the, what's the word for it? Like, this is one of the more like notable features of the movement at this time is that we start seeing groups. We, there had always been activists and people who wanted to make a change, but now we see more organized groups coming together to make substantial legislative change. And so, for example, when the federal government wanted to build a dam on Seneca land, the Native Americans cited treaties that had been signed during George Washington's administration saying that the U.S. wouldn't build on Seneca land. And so that project got canceled. And so you could see a lot of progress is being made. And then actually Native Americans were at the center of the anti-Vietnam protests. And so I thought this was really uh, interesting and really honorable because they were not only fighting for their own rights but also against like the aggression of the U.S. government as a whole and the government's like brutality to its own people and the people of Vietnam because actually many Native Americans who had served in the war found a lot of similarities between American soldiers treatment of Vietnamese peasants and then past soldiers treatment of Indians. So I thought that was like really incredible yeah. and I don't think that gets mentioned a lot. Yeah, honestly, we don't talk enough about the Vietnam War either. That should be another episode. Yeah. And like, I don't know if I told you when I, I actually went to Vietnam and just like spent a day in the museums and like every American should probably take a trip to Vietnam and just do that too because the way that we treated them, like a lot of American soldiers is ridiculous and it's not just like fighting against soldiers it's just like innocent civilians and kids and the way that we came in there yeah literally just so many innocent lives were lost and it was really brutal yeah that we killed and harmed them yeah honestly like tortured too it wasn't even like the images are really disturbing anyways that's another topic well yeah well I think that's like one of the reasons why we don't talk about it is because it's really hard to remember but I we have to remember it so we don't repeat the, that in the future. But yeah, we, that's, maybe that's something we could talk about in another episode too. Because conveniently in 
I feel like in all my history classes, we only made it up to World War II. We never got to that era. But anyway, <laughs> um, so one of the events during this time to support the movement that caught some of the most media attention was the occupation of Alcatraz Island. So I literally had no idea of this, but Native American activists had actually, like, they went to the island and occupied it for a very significant time. And so the prison had actually closed in 1963. And so after that, Native Americans in San Francisco and the Bay Area were started lobbying the government to have it redeveloped as an Indian cultural center and school. But they, yeah, the government basically was like, um, no, sorry. That's also, how do you get, wouldn't you have to take like a boat every day to get to Alcatraz? Yeah, yeah, I think there, yeah, you would have to take a boat, but I don't know, maybe like water taxis or something. Okay. (laughs) I don't know, I've never been to Alcatraz, I don't know how far away it is from the shore. I think you can possibly swim, (laughs) not really though. (laughs) Like, if you're really in shape, you could swim. No, like, there were, like, prisoners who escaped from Alcatraz, and the whole thing is, like, oh, did they survive? There's actually only, like, three prisoners who escaped, and that is, like, a big conspiracy theory because the bodies were never found, but then... I don't know, I looked into it for a little bit. They do have, like, a triathlon called The Escape from Alcatraz, but I don't think you're actually leaving Alcatraz. I think you're on a boat out there and then you swim in i see okay yeah they're not like here go be free but yeah (laughs) but yeah (laughs) so yeah okay so in october 1969 a fire burns down san francisco's american indian center and so these native americans are even more adamant like hey now we really don't have anything like can we please please build a native american cultural center on this island And again, the government says no. And so in November 19th, 1969, a handful of protesters belonging to an activist group known as Indians of All Tribes occupy Alcatraz. And so they're led by Mohawk leader and professor Richard Oakes. And Richard Oakes, he basically argues that the protesters had the right to occupy the island under a treaty provision that granted the Native Americans uh, unused federal land. And he also said quite sarcastically that Alcatraz should be an Indian reservation because it was isolated and rocky, it had no running water, and it housed prisoners. Yo. So he like he was really serving the tea. Like he has the snarkiest remark remarks, like, oh my gosh, you everyone should look up Richard Oaks and all of his uh, interviews because he like Oh my god. He's got some good <laughs> comebacks. <laughs> um <laughs> And so these protesters only end up staying for one night before they're removed by authorities. And so Oaks, he comes back and he states that if a one-day occupation by white men on Indian land years ago established squatters' rights, then the one-day occupation of Alcatraz should establish Indian rights to the island. So he is like really ruthless. I love it. But, um, <laughs> and so on November 20th, 1969, the Indians of all tribes activist group, they try one more time to occupy the island. And this time they come with 89 men, women, and children. And so a bunch of people come this time. And they all move into the old warden's house and the guard's quarters. And they address the public and they state their intentions to use the island for an Indian school, cultural center, and museum. And so it's like, it's pretty innocent, you know, innocent request. Like, it, it's not, they're not really asking for much. And so 
Richard Nixon is president at the time, and his administration was pretty hesitant at first to forcefully remove the protesters. So the government decides to leave them alone as long as they're peaceful. And there are actually many attempts by the government to settle a compromise with the protesters diplomatically, but the activists are very adamant that they won't settle for anything other than land rights. And so more and more protesters come to the island because this demonstration is gaining so much media attention. And so pretty soon there are actually more than 600 occupants on the island. And so they form a governing council. They create a clinic, a kitchen, public relations department, and even a nursery and a grade school for their children. Literally, like it's their own settlement, like basically. Yeah. yeah, dude, how big is Alcatraz? I did not think it was that yeah. big. <laughs> I guess they have, like, the prison itself can hold a lot of people, but I don't think the island, like, I don't think there's much free space. Yeah, to... I think it's tiny. I'll go sometime and let you know. Yeah, please do. I don't do. think it's that big. No, it does not sound like it's a fun place to live, but they were very passionate about the cause. So, however, by early 1970, many of the island's college students had to return to school, and they ended up leaving the island. And they were actually soon replaced by people who were more worried about living rent-free than the actual cause. Wait, but, like, weren't they, were they also Native American? Or was it people who weren't even Native American who just came? There were some Native Americans, some non-Native Americans. Because it's getting a lot of media attention and people are coming out. And, yeah, I think there are some people who are taking advantage of the situation and weren't really there to like fight for the land rights yeah and so unfortunately drugs and alcohol although they were originally banned it becomes a pretty prominent issue on the island as these newcomers join the settlement and this is really sad but in january 1970 oaks's young stepdaughter she falls to her death from one of the stairwells and so because of this oaks and his wife leave the island soon after and so this kind of leaves all these different groups to fight over control of the island and so the government the federal government sees this and they decide that there's really no longer much hope for a diplomatic resolution and so they decide to cut off all the power in an effort to like force the activists out and they're all these activists are so passionate that they decide to stay and a few weeks later a fire breaks out and burns down several buildings yeah it's really sad and so despite these awful living conditions and then there's also diminishing outside risk support because it's you know it's going on so long and the media is not paying as much attention to it so despite all this there are still a few activists that continue to live on the island for a whole nother year this lasts forever and so on june 11th 1971 armed federal marshals descend on the island because they're like hey we need to restore the island's foghorn and lighthouse like we've la- we waited for over a year and so sorry but you guys all have to leave and so they removed the last of the activists and so by the end the remaining protesters included six men, five women, and four children. And so the occupation lasted 19 months, and it basically inspires many other occupations and protests all across the country. And because of this, federal officials begin to listen more to issues regarding Native American self-determination. And later on, the U.S. government would return millions of acres of ancestral Indian land and they would pass more than 50 legislative proposals supporting tribal self-rule. So they're 
was a lot that came out of this. So the Native American Civil Rights Movement can be seen as one of the most radical social movements of the era because unlike many other, I guess, more populist causes at the time, the Native American Rights Movement attacked people's fundamental right to their own property by arguing that American society was built on the theft of Indian land. (laughs) See, that's funny that you're like, it's like the more radical, but I was like, no, it makes sense. Like, but yeah, I guess like that is a radical. No, I don't actually don't. I have a hard time feeling like that's radical. No, but I guess, yeah, I guess it's just, it's not as populous or I don't know if that's the correct word, but it basically is attacking like, every non-Native American, but right, rightfully so. Oh, so any landowner, basically, like, you're in. Yeah, any landowner. Okay. But you see where they're coming from. Yeah. It's also, like, it's also really interesting to note that these Native Americans are protesting against the U.S. government by using their own treaties against it, and this kind of ultimately exposes the government as a dishonest institution. So that's why I think the Native American Civil Rights Movement is really different compared to other social activist movements because its focus is like mainly legal and that's kind of how they fight things out is through the courts. Yeah, that is. I think that's also very uh, impressive to me is like you basically just like, you made this contract and this is what you said. I think that's really clever. and Well, and there are so many treaties that had been signed too. So you have to have such a wide knowledge of all these different treaties that have been made like years and years like hundreds of years ago well to be honest if like you're getting taken advantage of for years and years and years i'd be reading my treaties too like what did i sign up for (laughs) that's so true yeah you know how many times i read my lease statement like (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. i would not be messing around no, that's so true. Yeah, you're you would definitely be way more, I guess, yeah, way more knowledgeable on that. Right. And so, yeah, also at this time, we see all these different organizations that are being created because they're I guess before this, it was mostly inner tribe activism, and so you kind of mostly worked with your own tribe to fight for your land rights in your area, in your reservation. But then now we see a lot of organizations where we're getting Native American leaders from all across the country to come together and support the movement as a whole. And so one of these organizations is the American Indian Movement, also known as AIM. And so it's founded in 1968 by Russell Means, Dennis Banks, and other Native leaders as a militant political and civil rights organization. And it was actually one of the reasons they decided to create this organization is to stop police harassment of Native Americans in the Minneapolis area because that had been a really uh, big issue at the time. Minneapolis, Minnesota? Yeah, Minnesota. Yeah. Okay. So I guess that was an issue all the way in the 1960s, so I'll leave it at that. So now this brings me to, I guess, what I want to talk about for the remainder of the episode, which is... Uh, the occupation of Wounded Knee in 1973, which is one of the more well-known demonstrations during the Native American Civil Rights Movement. And so Wounded Knee is located in the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. And so it's a small town, and it's actually, in 1890, it was the site of the massacre of 300 Sioux Native Americans by the 7th Cavalry. 
And so it holds a lot of historical significance for Native Americans in the area. And in 1973, Wounded Knee is home to the Oglala Lakota tribe. And it's one of the poorest communities in the U.S. And it has one of the country's lowest rates of life expectancy along with the other towns within the Pine Ridge Reservation. And so, like, it's really sad. It's a really poor community. And on top of this, the people in Wounded Knee face racism not only outside of the reservation but inside their own reservation as well and this is partly due to a very poorly managed tribal government and so basically the people of Wounded Knee really wanted to remove the tribal chairman Dick Wilson because they thought he was very corrupt and so people said he favored mixed race assimilated Lakota like himself and so they tried and tried to impeach him but it all, all their efforts failed. And so the Oglala Lakota tribal leaders, they turned to AIM for help with removing him by force. And so they contact AIM and AIM's answer is to occupy the town of Wounded Knee. And so in early 1973, AIM begins their preparations for this occupation. AIM believes that they needed to use physical force in order to create change in American society. So that's why they choose to arm themselves with guns and other weapons and they refuse to leave the town. And they also argue that they had to arm themselves because the US government had robbed them of their lands with far worse acts of violence. So that is their mindset going into this demonstration, occupation. On February 27th, 1973, Around 200 Sioux Native Americans, led by members of AIM, occupy the town of Wounded Knee. Basically what happens is they arrive in town at night in a caravan of cars and trucks and they take the town's residents as hostage. They declare the town liberated from the U.S. Then they cite a treaty from 1868 that allowed the town to remain under Lakota control. And so they have this treaty and they're like, this is one of the many treaties that the government has ignored and actually this shouldn't be American soil. And within hours, police surround the town of Wounded Knee. And so basically this prevents protesters from leaving and then sympathizers from entering. And so they basically besiege the town. They order the occupants to disarm themselves, but that does not happen. So Dick Wilson, the tribal chairman that people were complaining about earlier, he had actually heard about Ames' plans to occupy the town and remove him. And so he, or before this, he retreats to tribal headquarters where he is under the protection of federal marshals and then Bureau of Indian Affairs police. And so he's like safe and out of the picture, even though that was kind of one of their main reasons for occupying the town. And so the following day, AIM members begin trading gunfire with federal marshals that are surrounding the town. And then they also fire at like automobiles that are driving by and then low flying planes. From then on, they would trade fire with federal authorities almost every night. And so I wanted to ask you like, how long do you think this siege lasts? I literally was about to ask you, I was like, how long did that last? Um, let me think. Can I, I was thinking like a week maybe. Okay. Okay. Is it of like ongoing? It's just like them firing back at each other every day. Is that your final answer? Yeah, but I guess it's wrong. So, 
So it, it actually lasts 71 days. <gasps> no! What? So over two months. Over two months. My mind was blown. That is so Every single long. day. Every single day they're trading fire with federal authorities. Like, I cannot imagine how stressful that living situation could be like. For 71 days. Right. Also, are they like... Did anyone get hurt? And also, what was the cost of, like, always needing to buy, like, weapons? We'll get into that, uh, like, after this. But, yeah, it lasts for a really long time. And so they're basically trapped in the town, though, you know, because the authorities are surrounding the town. So their only way out is, like, through surrender. In order to try and break the siege, the FBI cuts off all electricity and water to the town and they attempt to prevent food and ammunition from being passed to the occupiers. So this is like literally horrible, horrible living conditions. And so Bill Zimmerman, he's a sympathetic activist and a pilot from Boston. He basically agrees to deliver 2,000 pounds of food and supplies to the town, like via a small little plane. He flies to Wounded Knee, and he's like, I don't know the mechanics of it, but he's like dropping, <laughs> dropping the supplies. However, when the occupiers like run out of the building where they were hiding to grab these supplies, the federal agents open fire on them. Yeah, so during this shootout, the first member of the occupation to die, uh, he's a Cherokee man. So he was shot by a bullet that had flown through the wall of a church. And so he's the first person to be killed in this occupation. Question. Okay, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around, like, physically what this looks like. So yeah. they're, they're, like, surrounding a town, Yeah. basically. And is there, like, a barricade at all? Or it's just, like, literally, like, I'm imagining, like, tanks or something in a big circle around it. Yeah, when I was looking at photos, I, like, didn't get an aerial. I didn't see any aerial staff photos, but the photos they did, there were tanks and, like, like physical, like, wood barricades that blocked off the roads. And also, you have to, like, remember, it's in South Dakota, so it's, like, open plains. And so there's really, like... There's no trees for people to hide behind. It's just, like, building. Yeah, I'm imagining it's, like, pretty open. It's very open. So it's just, like, building. So you can't really, like, you can't run. You can't escape because you're out in the open. And then was this after the 71 days then, like, or is this during the 71 days then someone died? This is during the 71 days. Okay. Yeah, so this is, I don't, I think it's about, like, halfway through, maybe closer towards the end. But I didn't get a specific date on the Bill Zimmerman airdrop. I know he actually wrote a book about, the the pilot wrote a book about this event, and so you can read that. Yeah, so they're, they're trading fire with federal agents every night, and then on April 26, tribe member Buddy Lamont is shot and killed by agents, and morale drops severely because this has also been going on for so long. Really awful living situations. And so AIM members, they basically, they really want to continue the occupation, but the Oglala, they overrule them. And so after this, negotiations pretty much begin. Like before there had been negotiators that had been sent from the government to talk to the protesters, but they really had no interest in what they were saying. But then after the second member is killed, then that's when they really start putting more effort into the negotiations. And so Russell Means, he was one of the founders of AIM. So he leads the negotiations for the release of the hostages. Because you also have to remember, like, they're taking the people in this town as hostage. Richard Means, he demanded that the U.S. Senate launch an investigation 
of the Bureau of Indian Affairs and all Sioux reservations in the South Dakota, in South Dakota. Um, and he also wants the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to hold hearings on the several Indian treaties broken by the U.S. government. And so they have very like specific legislative action that they want to be passed. That's all pertaining to land rights. Yeah, right? pretty much all pertaining to land rights. And then also there's this Bureau of Indian Affairs, which exists today, and they're, they have a lot of complaints with the Bureau as a whole and the way they deal with Native Americans. And so the AIM also ended up occupying the Bureau of Indian Affairs building in D.C. later, and so there's a lot of issues with this specific department. They want an investigation being held on the department to make sure it's as effective and supportive as possible for Native Americans, and then also land claims and breaking treaties like they want these treaties to be reconciled yeah i was gonna ask so this is this is the wounded knee it's not the wounded knee massacre yeah so there is this is wounded knee 1973 there is a wounded knee massacre in 1890 and that's yeah where basically the u.s army they massacred i think what did i say 300 in the 1800s yeah in 1890 so yeah 300 native americans are killed and so yeah that's one of the reasons why they choose Wounded Knee, um, it really holds a lot of significance during their protest. Just remembering like all the atrocities that has been committed in this one town. On May 8th, 1973, AIM leaders and supporters surrender after officials promise they're going to investigate their complaints. So they're like, okay, we'll meet your demands. And so throughout the duration of the siege, two Native Americans were killed and a federal marshal was permanently paralyzed by a bullet wound. Some AIM members actually managed to escape the town before being arrested. However, there are still like hundreds of arrests that are made. And so Russell Means and Dennis Banks are among the activists that are arrested. But on September 16th, 1973, they go to court, right? And the federal judge actually dismisses the charges against them because the U.S. government had unlawfully handled witnesses and evidence. So it had kind of come out that the FBI had manipulated key witnesses. And so the charges against them are dropped and they're let free. So remember how one of, when they had started to occupy the land, they said that there was this treaty from 1868 that allowed the Oglala Lakota to claim the land, right? And so the government basically concludes that this treaty was superseded by the principle of eminent domain. And so eminent domain, I like remember hearing about it in like AP US government, but I had completely forgotten what it means. So just as a refresher for everyone, eminent domain is the power of the government to seize the private property of an individual or group for use by the state if they provide just compensation to property owners. Oh, okay. I have heard of this because isn't it like, that's when like the guy, like if they want to build a highway, like they can take your house. Yeah, as long as they like pay you. Yeah. Yeah, then it's fine. And so basically they're like, well, we paid you for this land. And so this treaty is invalid and it's actually American soil still. Did they get paid for the land though? And what were they compensated? I could not find, that's what I was, that was my immediate thought. I was like, okay, was it actually just compensation? Because I guess, uh, yeah, a long time ago when, during Westford expansion and all that, I guess the land technically was purchased, but I could not find for how much. Uh, But like, yeah, like what, 
because California's expensive, baby. Like, how much did you pay right. them? <laughs> you know, like that's what I would be very interested to see. Like, how much they paid uh, the tribes for their land. Mm-hmm. But basically, they're like, your whole argument is invalid, and so. Oh my god. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So people, as you can imagine, people were very devastated. Yeah. And in terms of, I guess, other ways this event is remembered. So according to the U.S. Marshal Service, the occupation of Wounded Knee was actually the longest lasting civil disorder in 200 years of history. So I think it's also important to know like, different ways this event is remembered and kind of people's sentiment on what happened. Oh, I was going to say, I would love if we could find someone who's like more connected, like maybe Native American and has like gone through like history and like heard stories from their family because I'm curious as to the the whole purchase argument that they made like who do they pay like who got the money who did they make a deal with and why does that invalidate like every single other person who's a part of the community no I would really love to talk to someone about that too because I have so many questions I'm also like yeah who gets the money who decides like how much money is being spent and then also i i guess eminent domain is kind of tricky because like what is the justification like what qualifies when they use the word like just compensation like what what makes it like a reasonable price who is determining right like who who gave the appraisal on that like how can yeah who's putting a price tag yeah i would really like to talk to someone about that um i guess i'll uh, there are a lot of autobiographies that are written about, about this and these activists, so I'll mention those a bit later. But there is a great PBS documentary uh, special about the occupation in 1973. So you could hear you, the the people who were there during this protest are being interviewed, so... Yeah, I know a few people who do... They're, like, descendants of Native Americans and they do activist work in the Native American community. So maybe we could reach out to them. Or if you're listening to this and you are Native American or you know someone who is Native American who is connected to that history, please email us at howdidwenotknowthat at gmail.com. Yes, please do, because I would love to have... I would love to hear, I guess what they would have to say and yeah I have so many questions so please reach out to us and so (laughs) I guess to talk a little bit more about what happened after so surprise surprise Congress took no steps to honor the broken Indian treaties but actually uh, in the courts some tribes would win major settlements from both state and federal governments in cases regarding tribal land claims. So the judicial system is really important, especially when it comes down to land claims. And so Dick Wilson, so he is actually not removed from his position. And the Oglala blamed the federal government for failing to remove him because that was like when they were making negotiations, they were like, hey, can you like please get him out of here? And the government, their response is that it would be illegal for them to do so because it would violate laws regarding tribal self-determination which is true a lot some people do argue that that's a bit shady because they had not been so uh, i guess respectful of these laws in the past and so i'll leave that at that but um after the siege ends basically a civil war between dick wilson and a pro-aim faction of the oglala lakota continues on the reservation but in 1974 wilson is re-elected to the tribal presidency and he remains in his position sadly violence continues on the pine ridge reservation throughout the rest of the 1970s so this was this really broke my heart and it 
really shocked me. In the three years following the standoff, Pine Ridge, where Wounded Knee is located, it would have the highest per capita murder rate in the whole country. It's, I mean, if you think about population too, like it's a really small population in terms of, I guess, the U.S. population as a whole. So um, a series of beatings, shootings, and murders left more than 100 Native Americans dead. And among these incidents is an incident that occurs in 1975 where a Native man and two FBI agents were killed in a shootout between federal agents and AIM members and local residents. And so AIM member Leonard Petlier, I I hope I'm pronouncing it right, it's P-E-T-L-I-E-R, but he was found guilty of first-degree murder, and he's sentenced to two consecutive life terms. What? Two consecutive life terms? I guess the argument... He killed two. Yeah, two FBI. Well, you're gonna die once. What is the point? Just to spite <laughs> you, two consecutive life terms. But yeah. just one... Con- you can't... I think it also... I think when it comes to, like, sentencing, it also has to do with, like, what happens when you are eligible for parole. Like, I think the more life terms you have stacked upon you... Okay. So I think that's the significance of it, too. But basically, yeah, it does not look good for him. And so today, Pine Ridge Reservation is the largest community in what might be the poorest county in the U.S. And so in 2010, the per capita income in Shannon County, South Dakota, where Pine Ridge and Wounded Knee are located, it was lower than any other U.S. county. And this also blew my mind. According to reports, adult unemployment rate on the reservation is somewhere between 70% and 80%. I can't even comprehend that. Like, that's 80% of adults are unemployed. So, it's extreme, extreme poverty. Like, what? How do you live then? I, I don't even know. that. Like, how do you live? How do you survive And when, like, you're basic human needs aren't being met yeah also do you know where like most of the reserves are like i don't even know where they're located yeah a lot of it is like in the plains the great plains so like south dakota oklahoma uh i think like montana wyoming like that area but that's not necessarily that doesn't mean that that's where i guess like so before europeans came native americans or indigenous people were like everywhere but then because we have forced removal of indian groups and the whole trail of tears and the jackson administration they're all forced to move to this area and they're all concentrated there yeah and then a question on when you were talking about that like a a lot of people were murdered and stuff Mm -hmm. why was there so many like shootouts again what because i thought like this land right thing was settled yeah it like kind of was settled but there's, like, a con- continuing, like, feud? Yeah, because, so the treaty, they were, like, oh, the U.S. government, like, eminent domain supersedes the treaty, and then they said they would launch an investigation, like, whether or not that investigation was actually produced the amount of, I guess, research that they had wanted. Maybe it wasn't as satisfactory as people had wanted. Yeah, the tribal chairman, Dick Wilson, had not been removed, so there are still... There was no resolution to the issues. It was kind of like they put a Band-Aid on the situation. Like, AIM, there are so many demonstrations and different occupations that AIM and other Native American activist groups would hold throughout the 1960s and 70s. Like, you could... It's a whole, like, rabbit hole. There are so many that happen. And because of this, a lot of these groups choose to arm themselves. And so that's why there are a lot of deaths. Okay. Actually... 
1978, AIM disbands due to the fact that several of its members were imprisoned, but local AIM groups continue to function afterwards. And like I mentioned earlier, there are a lot more demonstrations that are held. And in 1981, one of these groups occupies part of the Black Hills in South Dakota. So this is not just like an isolated event. It occurs many times. Russell Means, so he was the founder of AIM. He was leading the negotiations. He continued to advocate for Native American rights at Pine Ridge and elsewhere. And so in 1988, he runs for president under the Libertarian Party. And obviously he, he doesn't win, but um, <laughs> 1992, um, begin, he begins acting in several films, including Last of the Mohicans. And he was also a guest star on Curb Your Enthusiasm. He supported the movement in Hollywood and in film. And then in 1997, he released an autobiography titled Where White Men Fear to Tread. I'm trying to find it at the library. I really want to read it. So yeah, I encourage everyone to read it too. You could hear his accounts of why he decided to create AIM and the struggles that he faced growing up. In 2001, he also attempts to run for the governorship of New Mexico, but his candidacy was disallowed because procedure had not been followed. So basically, he doesn't qualify, and so people can't vote for him. And then sadly, he passes away on October 12, 2012, at the age of 72. And Leonard Petlier, Petlier, I don't know, the he, <laughs> um, he was the one I mentioned earlier. So he actually remains in prison today although there are continuing efforts to win him pardon. His next scheduled parole hearing is in 2024, and he is currently 75 years old. In terms of how Wounded Knee impacted the movement as a whole, so basically this event sparks a bunch of international sympathy for Native American activism, and it inspires indigenous people and left-wing activists all across the country. And a lot of people would later remark that the standoff in 1973 closely resembles the actual Wounded Knee Massacre of 1890 because people refusing to arm and besieging the town and some Vietnam veterans who were occupying Wounded Knee, uh, they actually said that the siege felt like war and reminded them of Vietnam because there's just gunfire daily and so it was a really traumatic experience for everyone and I guess I kind of wanted to mention that I guess perhaps more than any other civil rights movement, its work remains unfinished. There's still so much progress that needs to be made in regards to Native American rights. However, I don't want to downplay the amount of activism that still remains today. There's so many activist groups all across the country, hundreds and hundreds of groups that are working to create change in American society. So I just wanted to list off a few of these groups. The American Indigenous Business Leaders, they're a nonprofit organization designed to support and promote the education and the development of future Native American leaders while maintaining and incorporating cultural values. There's also the American Indian Policy Center, and its mission is to provide government leaders, policymakers, and the public with accurate information about the legal and political history of American Indian nations and the contemporary situation for American Indians. We also have the Native American Journalists Association, which serves and empowers Native American journalists through programs and actions designed to enrich journalism and promote Native cultures. And finally, I wanted to, I guess, highlight the Women Empowering Women for Indigenous Nations, which ex exists 
to provide Native women with the knowledge, support, and resources necessary to achieve success in their personal and professional lives. And they hold an annual conference that serves as an opportunity for Native women to engage in professional renewal, inspire others, and to network. There are so many other organizations that I would love to talk about. I do not have the time, um, but I encourage people to look into local activist groups, national activist groups. And yeah, I guess that kind of wraps up. It's a very brief and short summary of the Native American civil rights movement in the 1960s and 70s. Yeah. There are so many more significant events that deserve recognition so I encourage people to do further research right I honestly feel like thank you for sharing firstly but I honestly feel like this like the this deserves like a few more episodes because yeah I feel like just the the wounded knee massacre of 1890 how did we not know that I have never heard of that and then while you were talking I like looked it up and I was like oh there were two situations like this which the siege which you presented on But this is, like, serious stuff. Like, that's a big deal. I don't know why they didn't bring that up in history class. Yeah. um, During high school. Yeah. So, yeah, I feel like that alone could have been one topic. So I feel like we can definitely bring up more on this in the future. Yeah, I think that's really important. And, yeah, I would love to talk about it more. There's so many events throughout history. I think a lot of Native American history is forgotten by most Americans and it isn't taught about in the classroom and so we need to encourage people to learn about it on their own and definitely promote and and also make change within the classroom and the education system as well. well thank you for presenting <laughs> thank you for listening <laughs> this has been an episode of how did we not know that if you liked it don't forget to subscribe to us on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from you can also follow us on all social media including youtube at how did we not know that if you thought our podcast was low quality we know we thought so too help us improve the podcast by contributing to our patreon thank you for listening and see you guys next week